Remain standing, please, and take out your Bible and turn with me to the book of First John, the fifth chapter. It's on page 992 in your pew Bible. If you brought your own Bible, it's way back there towards the book of Revelation. If you're visiting, we've been learning how to pray from the greatest prayer of all time, Jesus Christ. We come to a very strange passage. John, who is with Jesus in the great prayer of John 17, the high priestly prayer. This is where the Roman Catholic Church gets cardinal and venial sins from. And it's a strange passage, but it teaches us how to be intelligent in praying for our friends and family. Together as God's people, let's read verses 13 to 17, the fifth chapter, together out loud. And as you read, listen carefully, you're reading God's word. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the boldness we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of Him. If you see your brother or sister committing what is not a mortal sin, you will ask and God will give life to such a one, to those whose sin is not mortal. There is sin that is mortal. I do not say that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that is not mortal. The sins are reading of God's holy word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Most of us finally get to the place where we learn to trust prayer. And then we start to pray for others. And it is astounding how many Christians will live their whole life in a very immature prayer state for others. We might muster up something like, Lord, be with them, whatever that means, like God isn't there anyway. And Jesus teaches us how to pray for people. We saw that in the uh, template of the Lord's Prayer, which is really a form for praying. You talk to the Father about His name and His plan and then His provision. We saw that on our Wednesday nights of engaging the culture for Christ and how uh, fun it was last Wednesday night, the Da Vinci Code panel and several hundred people here discussing uh, that book. We saw from Jesus that in the annoying neighbor parable that you're never to give up on prayer. God has bread. We don't and we're hungry. Keep coming to the Father for that. Last week we saw the difficult thing of when from Jesus in Gethsemane, sometimes God says no to us. And God says no to us, not because He's angry, but because He has something greater in mind. And sometimes, even in this life, we'll never connect the dots on that, but we can trust Him. But this morning we learn how to pray for others. And in that passage you read, these are three truths that will be with you the rest of your life if you want to grow up in the area of praying for family members or friends. you got to learn to listen in prayer. you got to learn to love in prayer for others, and we must learn how to let it go in prayer for others. We have to learn to listen. True prayer is where we finally get to the place where we ask God, what do you want? And then he says, finally. Learning how to love. We pray for some people, and what we saw there in First John, sometimes you pray for God's life and forgiveness when somebody stumbled. Sometimes God wants you to pray for their conviction, and only the Spirit Himself can lead in that. And finally, learn how to let it go. We're going to see one of Jesus' early miracles 
that when someone released their friend to him rather than holding on, that's when Christ could finally move. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with one of our uh, members. She's a new surgeon, and she was trying to tell me the thrill of, after all the medical school and the residency and everything, of saving a young boy's life and watching the parents afterwards. And there's nothing more thrilling in life than being used to help transform somebody. Except maybe one thing. Being on the receiving end of that transformation. And this morning, as we said, and here in a few minutes, we're going to be having a time of healing. And we're going to have the elders pray for you and to anoint you with oil. And we'll find out. And then they don't pour a bunch of oil on your head so you look like a toss salad or something. <laughs> oil is a sign of being consecrated and set aside. And that simple act of faith and obedience literally changes lives. Well, let's take a look, first of all, of uh, learning how to listen. Uh, turn with me back over to that passage in First John. On uh, page 992 in the... 13th verse. True prayer is finally where we say to God, what do you want? He says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may, gnosis, you may know that you have eternal life. You don't, if you're in here this morning and you've given your heart to Christ, you don't hope you have eternal life. You don't guess whether you have eternal life. You have it. You don't get it when you die. You have it right now. And John is writing them saying, that's what the cross is all about. That's why he rode in on this Palm Sunday and went to the Passion. And that's what the resurrection is. And because we have that new life, look at this. This is the boldness we have. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know we have already obtained the requests made of Him. Now, before we talk about you praying for your friends, point one, you need to have a friend to pray for them. <laughs> the reason I say that is we have the most socially skilled and relationally retarded culture in the history of the world, I believe. I mean that. There are people that can talk the talk, very socially skilled. They know how to drop thank you notes. They even return their emails. And yet, they're some of the loneliest people there's ever been. Because making a friend begins, first of all, with a commitment to make a friend. It's not just the people that you relate with. It's called promise making. Promise making makes the relationship more than even keeping the promises. Because if I trust you, I can make a promise. The moment I quit trusting you, and I won't make deals with you anymore, the relationship is over. And so, some of the, and you know, some of the people that you see that are famous or rich are some of the loneliest people. I was reading this last week. Alfred Lord Tennyson, the great poet, one time Queen Victoria said that she wanted an audience with the great poet. And Queen Victoria, I mean, talk about the height of regal power. And so he went in and met with her, and he said this afterwards. They asked him, what was it like? And he said, quote, Up there in all her glory and splendor, she was painfully alone, unquote. That she was lonely. I mean, imagine the loneliness of being the Queen of England. The loneliness of people. And you know, you sitting by all these human beings is sometimes the loneliest when you're in the crowd. You just want to know somebody else and to be known. 
And the number one thing Americans want out of a friendship, they say, is confidentiality. Isn't that interesting? Someone they can be themselves with. Like they say, a friend is someone when you make a fool of yourself, they don't think it's a permanent job. And confidentiality in the church, you know what that means, telling one person at a time. That's what confidentiality in the church is. But a friend is somebody that you can come and just share with. Even in marriages, when you, before you start praying, you need to listen to what maybe God is guiding and leading in that. Because it's about committing to each other. Somebody just uh, did a study with all the debate about same-sex marriage and everything. A study has come out on why do marriages make it? Uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. David Fennell just interviewed uh, over it's 500 couples, an average of 29 years in marriage, the same spouse. And he found out they stay together from two commitments. The first commitment is not to who they love, not their husband or wife. That's the second commitment. The first commitment, he says, and it, he's just a, a secular researcher, is to the institution of marriage itself. That those who stay through it stay not because they're having so much fun, uh, but they believe in staying committed to each other. He found this couple in Spain, Pedro Peña Moreno, who just celebrated his 101st birthday and his wife, Maria Dolores Sanchez. She's the young one. She's 96. <laughs> They've been married 73 years. And he asked her, it was on his birthday, um, he wasn't feeling well, but he gave him this interview. And they asked him, what do you account your being married so long? This is Pedro's response. Quote, not getting divorced. Unquote. Is that right? <laughs> didn't get divorced. Next question. Well, what does that mean? Well, what that means is friendship is committed to each other. But it's committed to helping each other. And that's why when you pray, we need to know what the Lord wants. Have you ever heard people say that I've done everything I can, I've tried so hard, all I can do left is pray. And you hear from heaven God saying, finally, you've been getting in the way the whole time. <laughs> that God will engineer things to the place where we say, Lord, I have to trust you. Bel Air, with the mission we have, if we're going to rely on organizational talent, we'll get what organizational talent can lead. If you're going to rely on, in your life, people, you'll get what people can deliver. If you're going to rely on money, you'll get what money can deliver. And it can deliver some good things. But when you rely on prayer, you get what God delivers. And He delivers a power. And that's why John says, if you see your brother committing a sin that is not, and the word means death, deadly, they just uh, polished up the uh, chancel, the bema area up here, and it's really slick. I don't know if you can hear that or not. And then the first hour, because I wear my robe for the choir, I had on uh, some black shoes. I came here, I thought, man, I was just whew, ice skating rink, you know. Uh, if you saw me over here and I fell, well, and I just stumbled, you should pray, you know, first of all, for my ego. But, <laughs> but if you saw me walking on the ledge up there, about ready to die... You don't pray for my forgiveness, you pray for my conviction to quit being stupid. When you know people in your life, and you're surprised because you know things that others don't, and you see their fallenness and their brokenness, God shows you those things, not so that you can shake your head and say, it's a pity, but God shows you those things so you know how to pray for them. And sometimes you pray, say, oh Lord, be merciful. They just stumbled. 
But if somebody's gassing their car and they're going off the wrong road on purpose over the cliff, you pray, oh God, convict. Now, conviction is not because you're mad at them. It has to be learning to listen and learning how to love. You want the best. Isn't that true? Some people, when you, when you think of them and you bring them to mind in prayer, you say, oh God, I pray for them. I pray that you would blind them. Oh God, and, uh, and we're angry at them. And God says, no, 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 no. But if you pray for conviction, God so believes in prayer, even if we don't. He says you be very careful with him. Because God is so thorough when he shows somebody their need. One time in my life, I felt the Lord have me pray for somebody in a strange way. There's a particular pastor in one of the cities I was in. And he was just killing his church and just mean-spirited and just saying bad things about others. And he was just so hard to get along with. And, and I didn't know what, but I knew I was supposed to pray. And so I was praying, and I was actually one day I was jogging, and I felt the Lord say, I want you to pray for a revival or his removal. And at first I thought, well, that must just be oxygen depletion. You know, why uh, would you do that? But I really sensed the Lord saying, pray for there be a revival to take place there, or you pray for his removal. Carol, I'll tell you, six weeks later, he resigned and left the church. Now, I don't believe because I'm such a great warrior of prayer, per se, but I was in the place where the Lord finally could say, this is how I want you to pray in that. And as you pray for your friends and your family members, rather than running in with your list of how you should, how God should fix it, that you run in and you say, oh, Lord, first of all, show me how to pray. And sometimes it's prayer for our family members. The more you pray for them, it looks like they're going to hell, not heaven. Sometimes the people you work with, the more you pray for them, the meaner they get. Well, the Lord calls us to be faithful in that saying and keep praying for His grace. So first of all, we listen to what the Lord wants. And then we love them in prayer. And if you can't, you don't have to have feelings of affection. We're so messed up as Americans. Loving somebody doesn't mean that, you know, you, you're all sweet. You know, some people are so sugary, you hug them, you get diabetes. Do you know what I mean? That you, That's not love. Love is wishing their very best. And so you dare not want anything but the best but then we learn to let it go. Let's take a look at one of Jesus' first miracles. If you have your Bible, turn with me over to Mark, the second chapter. It's on page 813 in your pew Bible. Jesus' ministry is beginning to explode, and he is the gospel is taking place, and he's healing people. And all of a sudden, he goes home. And home, by the way, is Peter's house. Simon Peter, and here in the second chapter, in verse 1. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door, and he was speaking the word to them. He's gathered at Peter's house, and the crowd is jammed around, and they're fascinated. This young Messiah, this traveling evangelist, uh, this carpenter, and he's saying things, and they can't get in. Verse 3. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. You gotta get that scene. Jesus is up front preaching, they're gathered, they're jammed together, they're hearing this oracles of God the Son. All of a sudden, this dust starts to drop down, and people, there's this noise, and there's ripping a hole through the roof. Everybody's probably thinking, what's going on? Peter, no doubt, was going, hey, 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 that's my roof. <laughs> Verse 5. 
When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, we don't know a thing about what this other guy thought. He said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit they were discussing these questions among themselves and he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them. So they were amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. I believe when you read that closely, what he saw that so moved Jesus is when they let go of the ropes. They have let him down, and it doesn't say like he's swinging like a cuckoo clock in front of them to see if Jesus doesn't work, they're going to yank him back up. I think they laid him in front of Jesus and said, you heal him or he stays paralyzed. And Jesus smiled when he saw their faith. And he said, your sins are forgiven. And they said, this is blasphemy. Only God for, could forgive sins. And Jesus went, warm, warm. <laughs> Which is easier? I'm not talking about I will forgive your sins. I'm telling you they're flat out forgiven right now. Get up and walk. And he was healed. And sometimes when we take people before the Lord, when God doesn't answer the way we want, we take them back thinking we're going to control the situation rather than releasing it, saying, Lord, they're in your hands. And I want to tell you, this is not an easy way to pray, but it's a powerful way to pray. And you have to very often remind yourself when you do that. Well, what is faith? The Latin fide, sola fide, faith alone. We get the word fiduciary responsibility, good faith in the marketplace in that way. Some teacher asked her Sunday school, what's faith? And a little boy went, oh, I know. It's believing something you know that isn't true. <laughs> and doesn't the world think that's what? That's not biblical faith. That's nonsense. Faith is where we come and we say, on the basis of what you have done and who you are, I choose to trust you and I take you at your word. Sometimes, and I'll tell you, I cannot connect all the dots in life why God does what he does. I know some people, they tell me they figured out God completely. Of course, they'll lie to you about other stuff too, you know. But I do know this about the Lord. I know He believes in prayer. When we were in Scotland studying there at St. Andrews, the tide goes out really far, like 200 yards, and there's just this muddy, smelly landscape. But when you look out, there's these boats that are laying out there on their side. And you see these Scots coming out there, and they have on their rubber boots and all their gear. And they'll go walking out to their boats, and they'll be slapping it, and they're kind of laying on their side. And, and they'll sit there, and they'll wait. And then they'll see the tide will come in, and it comes in just a little trickle at a time, and it slaps up against the boat. And if you were a betting person, you wouldn't put any money on the water. And then it'll keep happening. And then one wave, no bigger, no smaller, no different than any of the hundred waves before it, hits it, and it reaches buoyancy, and the whole thing writes itself. I believe there's some times that we keep praying and praying 
And then one time, because in the perfectness of a sovereign's omniscience and knowing when is the right time in the right way, not a better prayer, not a more earnest prayer, just that the timing of prayer we pray and the boat rights itself. I believe that when Christ went walking in, Marching in, riding in on that donkey this morning, he brought in a whole, their hopes of the kingdom. What they didn't know was the mystery. Now some of the kingdom is available to us in just a personal way, a splinter of it. I will never be more of a son of God, and you'll never be more of a daughter or son of God than you are right now if you're in Christ. Never. You'll never be more forgiven. You know that? You'll never be more loved. You'll never be more loved. Even as we grow, we please Him more. He'll always love you like He does right now. And I think you can take some advanced withdrawals on our accounts of this power of this kingdom. Why do people anoint each other with oil? Last verse. Turn with me over to James, please, the uh, fifth chapter, page 983 in your pew Bible. James, I believe, is the half-brother of Jesus. We know that his, four of his brothers are mentioned by name. He'll become one of the heads of the church who will later be martyred. And he never calls himself the brother of Jesus. He just says a servant of the Lord, which, you know, it tells you something. And he mocked Jesus to his face before the crucifixion. But here he's writing to the church. This might be one of the older letters of the entire New Testament. Let's read verses 13 to 18 together out loud. These are very important words. Are there any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. What he is saying is, this prayer of faith is what God hears. Now, we're not, you know, there are so many crazy people out there in prayer services. I mean, you go to some prayer services and they're throwing around walkers and crutches, you know. Well, and, and there's just some wacky people out there. But they're on to something. Outside of the charlatans. They're on to something. What they're on to is, it is God who does the healing. This is olive oil. And there's nothing magical about olive oil. What it was used for in the Old Testament was for two purposes. One, it was sort of like medicinal. I believe you should always have doctors and surgeons and physicians, the best medicine you can get, and to use that. And you add with prayer. When in the Psalms it talks about, God, you have bound up my wounds with oil, or the parable of the Good Samaritan, remember he bound up with oil and wine? It's like a liquid Band-Aid. And it had a little antiseptic and anesthetic ability to it to, to help heal. But oil was also a sign of being set aside. When Aaron, the high priest, was set aside, he poured oil on his head to say, now this is the zero blast center, the bullseye for God. When King David was being anointed by Samuel, the prophet, he poured oil upon him and said, now you are king. And all we do when these elders, 
And I believe the Lord uses them, not because of their righteousness so much, or they're godly women and men, but because of the office that they have. And when they take a little oil and put it on your forehead and say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, if they say, I pray in the name of the risen Lord, all they're saying is you are now in God's hands. And no one can say exactly how God will answer that, but you can bet your life God has heard that. I've prayed for people before that were not healed. But I want to tell you, I have prayed for people, and I've shared a couple of these. One of these, uh, we had a student director once by the name of Bernie. Bernie had such bad arthritis that uh, this was when I was doing a college ministry that he couldn't really walk. In fact, how I remember Bernie, we had him at a retreat up in the mountains. You know how you make those a little chair for him to sit in? I remember because we dropped him, uh, taking him, but he could barely move. I prayed over him for healing. I want to tell you, if I put up and he has the x-rays of how he was before and how he is now, you'd think they'd been reversed. I've prayed for people before that have been anointed, and I believe totally in therapy and counseling. I really do. But there's something when you say, Lord, spiritually, will you heal me? We've prayed for couples before. And you know, you might even want to come forward and be anointed and prayed for on behalf of somebody in the mystery of prayer and saying, I want to pray this. And really in that sense, being an intercessor means to go between, between God and that person. I don't know what exactly God will do, but I know He's going to do powerful things. And I do know this. You don't ask for prayer. You get nada. Jesus said you have not because you ask not. Ask that you may receive. Let's pray, shall we? Almighty God, as we come before you, we thank you for this awesome privilege that you have given us to be able to come to you in prayer and to know, Lord, that you not only hear us, but, Lord, you want to heal and you want to help out. Thank you, Father, you understand when we don't understand your ways and you're not angry with us when we're just children. The only time you're upset, Lord, is when we refuse to let you be God in our life. So, Lord, I pray now for those that need to be prayed for, for their sake or on behalf of others. I pray, Lord, that as we anoint them and set them aside, that you would do whatever glorifies your Son the most and blesses your people. Thank you, O Lord. Send your Holy Spirit as he is here among us to do what he does. Give life. For the sake of the King who wrote in this morning, we pray. Amen.